How can coaching support people with imposter syndrome? That's the question we ask in today's episode of The Coaching Question, which is a podcast for people who want to know more about coaching, how and when to use it, and really what's it all about. So thanks for listening as you join me, Gregor Finlay, and my colleague, Sarah Turner, two executive coaches for an honest conversation. So Sarah, what is imposter syndrome? Well, we've got a couple of definitions here. The first one we've got here by Pauline Clance. So she describes it as experience of intellectual fraudulence, despite measured success manifesting in denial of one's competencies, fear of failure, perfectionism, and difficulty owning and enjoying success. Quite an academic definition because this was from the original research. Yes. And so another one that perhaps is a little bit more accessible is imposters suffer from chronic self-doubt and a sense of intellectual fraudulence that override any feelings of success or external proof of their competence. And again, I mean, there's some quite big academic words in there, but, you know, I think I think you can have... You can have imposter syndrome probably on a bit of a, a scale in terms of levels of severity and the degree to which it impacts on how you feel in your day-to-day life. Would you agree? Yeah, I think everybody has some level of imposter syndrome. We play roles on this stage of life. You know, we present a public self that differs from our private self. So, you know, displaying a facade is part and parcel of the human condition. What happens within what's called neurotic imposturism is when is so for definition sake neurotic means you know there's a problem if it's psychotic you don't know there's a problem but so you're you're aware that you feel like an imposter but you don't feel you can do anything about it Mm. and that in many ways is what can feed the anxiety so i'm in this situation i don't feel i'm good enough to be in this situation i don't deserve to be in this situation and then often that then triggers that sense of panic and that anxiety which will you know play out in different ways for different people but classically might be feeling sick in the stomach or sweaty hands sweaty palms and you kind of find yourself in that fight flight type of situation it doesn't matter what the facts say it doesn't matter that there's logically you've been a fantastic success it doesn't matter how many stakeholders say they love you it doesn't matter you um you continue to feel like an, an imposter and um, the interesting thing is called a syndrome but it's not in the uh, diagnostic and statistical manual for mental disorders what is now in its fifth version dsmv5 so you, you can't be diagnosed. It's not a, a psychological condition that you can be ill from, but it is still called a, a, a syndrome. So we'll, we'll use the term syndrome because that's the popular parlance, but it isn't actually a, a psychological illness. No, and I think that I think that makes it feel a little bit more accessible and a bit more quote-unquote normal for, for me to feel that I might have episodes of imposter syndrome in times when I might experience it more strongly than others. And all of these things, if you think about paranoia, we may feel paranoid about some things and not others. And it's a scale. Yeah. You know, people who will have to have be treated by a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist, they may be suffering huge paranoid, like paranoid delusion. Mm. But at some level, we'll all be a little bit paranoid, which is what we need to do to stay safe. Mm. So as I said, it's everybody has got some imposterism it's when it's neurotic imposturism that, that it becomes a problem for people. 
And so if we think about how it shows up for us in coaching and, and why, we're, why we're talking about this today on our podcast, what would you have to say on that? Quite often, you know, we, are, we end up dealing with quite successful people. Hmm. Yeah. And quite often their success, neurotic imposterism can be a really good thing in terms of it drives success. People work very, very hard to overcome these feelings of inadequacy. And so they're highly successful and it can drive success. But one of the things that can happen with imposter syndrome is that you're always pleasing someone or you're looking to meet someone else's standards. Mm. When you become the boss, it can all fall apart because mm. you no longer have anybody to judge you or to seek to please. Before that stage, often when people are coming to transitions, it will be something that's blocking them. They can't really show the true confidence. One of the things we might talk about later is their vulnerability. They are arming up. They put on armor. Mm. And this means, and that's a metaphor that Brenny Brown uses, but because of that, they can't show the requisite vulnerability that's needed for people to be great leaders. Mm. So I think that's why we get involved in it in coaching, because we deal with successful people. Sometimes their success has been driven by neurotic imposterism, and therefore we have to be able to deal with those coaches. And what often is the case is that people are shaped by their histories, we've, as we've talked about in other podcast episodes. And so as a coach, we might work with a client to explore where does this come from? How familiar is this feeling of not being good enough or or anxiety or panic when you know the spotlight is on you? And almost instantly I can percept I can actually see in a client's face, you know, that moment their facial expression will just shift and they'll just have a really vivid memory often of when they were either a child in the classroom and something happened or a conversation they had with their father in the car or, you know, and then they can go, God, I can remember my dad saying this or whatever. And, and that starts to unravel and help us put together this overall picture, this experience that the client has had, which has led them to believe that what they need to do in order to be okay is to please their parents, please their teacher, get it right. And often, as you say, when they find themselves, and that's been very successful. For them because it meant it's meant they've done well at school done well at university done well at work um but actually then you get to a point where those habits those behaviors no longer serve you and they start to derail you and that's often where coaching can be really powerful yeah i've got a i've got a friend who came home from school with really pleased that her report card said 90 she had 99 percent in english mm. and our father said what happened to the last one percent you know so that was the evidence you know, of, of what went on in that relationship. There's nothing she could do that was ever going to please him enough. Exactly. Yeah. And it's that kind of story that a client will just go, oh God, yeah, I remember that. I remember my dad saying that to me. And there we go, okay, so how has that shaped how you behave? What did you learn as a result of that? I think what's important to understand is that people are confirming their own identity. Right, yeah. So when people say you're great at that, the internal voice says, no, you weren't. That was still rubbish. Mm. So that internal voice or voices are confirming my own identity as someone who is really an imposter. Yeah. You really, doesn't matter what people say, I know that I am not a great performer in that area or I can't please those people enough or I'm never perfect enough for that. 
Yeah, or I'm just waiting to be found out. <laughs> yes, all of those things. So why it needs to be a, something, an intervention like coaching, is this is internal work. Yes. So it's about my own identity. It doesn't matter what comes from the external. It's not about getting a new skill. I, I can't train in something that will help me with my neurotic imposturism. I need to do some work on my identity. And that's an internal exploration. And you need an environment where you feel safe. And that's what you can get through coaching or therapy because you won't feel safe to discuss this sort of thing with your boss. And the way I often think about this is because this is a habit, it's a behaviour, a behavioural pattern we've got ourselves caught up in from a young age. It's so automatic, it's unconscious. And so actually, no matter how many times you tell me I'm good enough, if I don't believe it, I don't believe it. Um, and so actually, that's where, as you say, you need that safety to be vulnerable, to explore the fact that this is a behavioural pattern. And how do I unpick it and overcome it so that actually it's not quite as limiting as it has been? Because you've got to unpick that automatic response, haven't you? Yeah, the, the root of it might be in our un unconscious and we're not conscious of that, but we are conscious of the we're conscious of the behaviour. The outcome, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we know it's harming for us, but we also know it's successful for us. Yeah. So, I, so therefore, I know it drives success, so I'm going to keep on doing it, but I know it makes me suffer. And eventually, people with imposter syndrome will burn out. And that's the real, that's the real challenge with it. And we both, we both come across it in our clients, either as a full-blown syndrome or, or part of the syndrome. What I think is quite interesting is, I think it can be quite easy to, to think that maybe it's one gender is more likely to struggle with this than another. And one of the, the ways I would sort of think about that is there's a book I'm going to put in the show notes, which is How Women Rise, which is a great book written by Sally Helgerson and Marshall Goldsmith. And in essence, it's, it looks at the 12 habits that typically will hold women back in their careers. And it's the idea of what has got you here won't necessarily get you there, which is that point that you made earlier. You know, it's been a very successful strategy up until now, but now I find myself in a leadership position. I actually now need to not be so conscious of what other people might think about me. So based on that, it might be a conclusion that one could draw is women tend to suffer with this more than men. But actually, when you looked into it, you found something different, didn't you? Yeah, the original research w was coming from the, the basis that they thought it was actually something that was more prevalent in women. And a lot of the, the research and the data initially showed that, but there has been more recent research that shows that it could be just as prevalent in men, and it's probably in different ways. So it's a bit more nuanced. What we do know is it's just a massive problem. <laughs> um, so there was recent research by KPMG and their study showed that 75% of executive women identified having experienced imposter syndrome at various points in their careers. And 85% believe it's commonly experienced by women across corporate America. So say there is a gender difference or there isn't, we know it's a huge problem. And mm. if it's something that's holding women back and we need more women in senior positions, we need to be able to deal. We need a good way of dealing with it, with imposter syndrome. Yeah, and I, I would say it shows up in probably eight or nine out of ten of my coaching sessions. And I do I, I do have a lot of female clients because of the work I do in maternity coaching. But yeah, it shows up more often, I would say, than and then anything else I can think of. 
Yeah, my my instinct is it turns up more. See, I have more male clients than female clients, and so it's hard for me to to judge it. But I think it does tend to turn up more in female clients. But I think the female clients I have tend to suffer from perfectionism more than my male clients. Yeah. And I think perfectionism is often one of the things that will drive imposter syndrome. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And the worrying thing is I see that in both my daughters. They're kind of one's a tween and one's a teen. But I can see it already, this desire to get it right, to get it perfect. I just have to keep saying to them, perfection does not exist. Let go of it. (laughs) But even from a young age, you know, and I, part of me, and I, I don't mean to to talk down the education system, but I don't think it necessarily helps because we train children to put the effort in to get the top marks. And even at junior school, you know, my daughter will come home and every day she'll tell me where she is on the behaviour board. And if she's moved up the board, she's delighted. And if she's moved down the board, she's devastated. Yeah. And that's all about how do I, ple- am I pleasing my teachers? Am I the good girl who's sitting there quietly with her legs crossed listening? Of course, as a teacher, I can see why that would suit them. (laughs) But actually, in the long term, all we're doing is training our kids to please other people, do, you know, meet my standards of expectation and forget about your own. It comes back to our episode we did on mindset, Mm. because how are the teachers giving feedback? Um, Is it about effort and ability to change or is it? more of a fixed mindset and and those things like performance tables yeah do encourage more of a a, a fixed uh, fixed mindset mm. so dealing with it where would you start in terms of because it presents you know you get presented with a lot of it in, in your practice it's the million dollar question isn't it <laughs> so i guess my starting point as i've already talked about is a little bit about where does this come from so just understanding a little bit about experience of life, what are those stories, how familiar is this, so that you can start to kind of get your arms around whatever that that story might be that you're telling yourself. And to understand that actually it is a story and it's not necessarily the whole truth. That Our thoughts, you know, we are not our thoughts. Our thoughts can come into our mind and they can leave. It's when they come in and tick up residence and get onto full volume that it can be a problem. So I have a couple of different ways that I talk about this. So should I jump into my aunt story, my little metaphor about the aunt? Yes. So one of the ways that I I like to think about it is noticing the negative voice. So when does the negative voice show up? What is the trigger? Noticing what happens to your body. So as I talked about earlier with the, the fight and flight, you know, the anxiety in the stomach, the sweaty palms, and thinking a little bit about, well, what is the voice in your head? What is it you're thinking? What is it you're saying to yourself that's triggering those feelings of anxiety? And often that voice is allowed to be on what I call full volume. So I think a little bit about showing my age here, but, you know, in the olden days when I was growing up, my dad would have a big stereo in the living room with a big volume knob on and say 20 was the highest volume it could go to. It's as if we've allowed that negative voice to be on 20 all the time. So a way I think about this is a bit like that aunt I don't know why it's an aunt, could easily be an uncle. That's a bit sexist, isn't it? A relative who comes to the house at Christmas once a year. And as soon as the aunt walks through the front door, she starts criticising, you know, why did you paint the hallway that colour, Gregor? Honestly, it's so dark in here. You need much better light. And you've done your roast potatoes in lard. They need to be in goose stripping or whatever it might be. And completely ripping apart and criticising everything that you are doing for Christmas Day. Now, on the one hand, you can cope with that because it's Christmas. Once a year, we'll keep quiet 
and let the aunt come in. And that's just how she is. But when we allow that negative voice to be on full volume all the time, it's as if we've let the aunt move in, take up residence, move into the attic and be there 24 seven, which is like that volume knob is on 20 all the time. And when we allow that negativity to drown out any other possibility, that's when it can become a real problem. So I'll pause for breath there for a second. What, what do you, what's your response as I, as I describe that metaphor? I think the thing that works for me is that the first step is just bringing it into our awareness mm. and having the client really acknowledge this is what's going on for them mm. because suddenly they can really start exploring it in a safe environment. I was actually surprised by one client. I took a risk and I just sent him an article on imposter syndrome. And he came back and he just said, that was the best thing you you could have ever sent me. It's changed everything for me. And it was just bringing into his awareness that he wasn't on his own. Yeah. That lots of other people feel like this too. Everybody. Yeah. Yeah. And he goes, okay, I'm, I'm not on my own. What else can I do about it? And that was the first step, really, really acknowledging it. Mm. And I think what you're saying is acknowledging the stories that you're telling yourself and acknowledging the voices. Yeah. And then I think the thing there is where you get further into identity work is to identify those voices as parts of yourself. Yeah. Well, one of the ways I'd work with that is once you've identified that the aunt has taken up residence in the attic is name her. Whatever you want, Gail, Bethel, you know, Ethel, I don't know, whatever, Berta, you know, just give her a name. And then when that, when you find yourself in that meeting and that, that those familiar feelings of the anxiety, the sweaty palms, oh, get curious. Oh, what's going on here? Ah, hello, Bertha, you're back. And it's just, hello, repeating pattern, you're here again. But actually it's just noticing it. It starts to mean that you're taking the power back. You're turning that volume knob down, not allowing it to be on full volume. Yeah, and it depends on the client and where where and the, the the issue and the voice. But you know, say you've named you've named Bertha quite like that, and then <laughs> um, the oh hello Bertha, you can just insert expletive off. <laughs> yeah, and, and I have had I have had clients that when the voice turns up, they tell that that they tell that part to go someplace else yeah. in un, no uncertain terms. Yeah. But that's, that's one way of dealing with it. Clearly, another way of dealing with it is a bit more nuanced is to really ask, what's the positive intent of that part? Yes. They want you to do well, but they've, they've fulfilled the role. Thank you very much. You're not needed anymore. You can do this instead, but don't get in my way. Yeah, and, and I think the point is, is, you know, with the aunt kind of taking up residence, it's almost as if she's she's kind of trying to convince you that she needs to stay because her role is to protect you, to protect you from being embarrassed, from being humiliated, from getting it wrong, from making a mistake. And that's where she gets her power from. Um, And so, as you say, give her a moment to just, okay, so what is your positive intent here? You want to make sure that I don't make a fool of myself in this meeting. Okay, well, do you know what? You don't need to worry about that because I've done the preparation. Volume down, you know. And so it's just allowing her to kind of have her moment, but equally not allow it to dominate everything. Yeah. One one of the things that can, that needs to be talked about often is self-compassion. Oh, Yes. Quite often when people have been really successful, 
is because they don't have an awful lot of self-compassion. They may be very compassionate towards their team or their family, but they will drive themselves really hard. So they're not in the habit of being compassionate towards self. Mm. And we we can't talk about self-compassion without talking about Brené Brown, can we? And I mean, we should probably just explain what you mean by self-compassion, because not everybody will necessarily know what we mean by it. And I mean, for me, the simplest way of describing it, and I say this to my kids when they're sitting there beating themselves up about how they got something wrong, is I just say, you know, and they sit there and call themselves an idiot or I'm so stupid or I can't believe I did that. And I just say, okay, just pay attention to how you're talking to yourself. Now, if your best friend was sitting next to you, what would they say? And then they go... Oh, that well, so and so would say to me, "Well, you know, you did your best. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine." And so it's it's inviting that best friend voice. You know, how would your best friend talk to you? And if you talk to yourself in a way that you wouldn't allow your best friend to talk to you, because I, you wouldn't allow me to sit here and say, "Rob, you know, Gregor, that was rubbish. What on earth are you thinking?" You'd be like, "Hang on a minute, Sarah, what are you doing?" Then you know, why is it okay to talk to ourselves like that? It's managing those internal. Uh, uh, those internal voices you said something early on about not being your thoughts Mm. and one of the things that can help people with dealing with this sort of thing are meditations Uh, and some people will meditate I love this one particular meditation which is when you do with parts work which is I am not my thoughts I have thoughts I am not my feelings I have feelings I am not my emotions, I have emotions. I am not my body, I have a body. Uh, And it's a reflection, we could put the full meditation in the show notes, but it's a meditation that really resets us as to who we are as the observer of all these things. Mm. And from that perspective, the evidence is clear that that individual has succeeded you know, in this place. And there's this other voice telling them they haven't done well enough when clearly they have. But if I can separate myself from my thoughts more yeah. and my feelings, I can be more rational in that, that perspective. Absolutely. And I know not everybody's into meditation, but actually that's pretty accessible and something that people can try, even if it's not you know, mindfulness or meditation isn't something that they, they practice on a regular basis. What I particularly like about it is, and actually this comes from acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, again, another link we're going to put in the show notes, but it's this idea that we get hooked on thoughts and feelings, and we take them to be true without questioning them. And if we think about how advanced our brains are and how bias works and all that sort of thing, our brains are often 10 steps, if not 100 steps ahead of us. And so sometimes it's just recognizing that we need to unhook from that unhelpful thought and actually let it go, hold it more lightly. Yeah, it's it's a heuristic. Mm. You know, there's Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. What we're talking about is there's a heuristic, a little rule set that's lower in our brain that takes no energy that says, I'm rubbish, I must do better. Mm. Because it's been successful for us. And what we're doing is we have to we have to short we have to short circuit that heuristic. Yeah. And be in more conscious control of what's going on. And I think maybe we move on to tips. Before we do that, can I just 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 one other thing just to to build on that point about unhooking from these unhelpful thoughts. So just one very quick story of a client I worked with who was very very focused on getting it right, getting it perfect and really wanting to have gone through all of the detail before it would go to the more senior person. And when we unpicked the story, it was about I need I need to it was about perfectionism. 
And actually for her, there was something around how do I unhook from this need for perfectionism? And it was a need to actually give herself permission to just slow down, take a breath, have the space, have the time that she needed. So there's just something around what, what do I need to give myself permission for that might help help me unhook from whatever this this unhelpful thought is. So I just want to put that out there for, for listeners. It might be useful just to think about what is it I need to give myself permission for? Yeah, and it's, there's no um, no surprise then that where you look at key drivers from transactional analysis, um, for example, be perfect, there is a permission, mm. which is good enough. Yeah. Um, and there's a permission for please others, which is please me. Mm. And when you're in full, full-blown be perfect mode, good enough doesn't feel right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so often some reframing around what quality really is, you know, but it's in, it's investigating what is the permission that works for you. I think it's a really good thing to identify. And this and this really, as we sort of start to bring the podcast episode to a close, is where can coaching make a difference when we're thinking about imposter syndrome is, for me, it's about creating that safe space to be vulnerable, to unpack the history, you know, where does this come from? What is the story I'm telling myself? When does it show up? And what are some strategies I can start to employ that are going to help me overcome this at the t- in the times and the occasions when I need to overcome it, recognising that actually, as I become more senior or take on more responsibility or transition to this different role, maybe that's not a helpful strategy for me to have anymore and I need to come up with a new one. It's, it's about the, the coaches helping the coachee back into the driver's seat. Absolutely, yeah. Not being out, not not having that aunt in the attic dominating everything. It's taking that power back. So I think if we think about tips, I, I think the first thing would be to just bring it into our awareness fully, uh, acknowledge, and such that we're able to really acknowledge the sense and achievements. You may still have imposter syndrome, but we're starting to make progress just by that acknowledgement. Sometimes that's all we need to do. And with any of these things, you know, a habit that's taken 20, 30, 40 years to kind of be in place is not going to be switched off in one coaching session. It's a journey. So as you say, it's, it's starting to kind of create a practice where you identify that voice, you know, that, that voice in your head that's giving you that criticism, that internal negative voice. And, and if you can acknowledge what it has to offer, why is, why is it there? It's to keep you safe. Um, but then actually consciously turn down that volume and recognize that we are in control of our minds, not the other way around. So we choose what we pay attention to. So the third would be meditations. Uh, we'll put a couple of meditations in the in the show notes, but that one I gave, you know, it just really separates ourselves from our programming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what meditations could be really useful for. And then the last one for me is really very much a shout out to Brené Brown. I can't claim it as my own kind of thinking, but it's first of all, recognising that actually to step out and put ourselves out there whilst feeling the fear anyway it's that kind of feel the fear and do it anyway it requires courage and bravery and it requires making yourself vulnerable and so it's actually just remembering that we can do those hard things and to have the courage and the bravery to give yourself permission to give it a go and so you know Brené Brown has this lovely quote where she says the cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek and for me, when I think about that, it's the cave is scary, right? It's scary putting myself out there. But actually, you know, if I was, if I really believe that I'm enough, there's no limit to what I can achieve. And I think sometimes for people with imposter syndrome, the scary thing 
is accepting the good stuff, accepting that you really are that good. That's the thing that's scary and that's where you need the courage. And I think having a coach there or a therapist is where you can feel safe and do that work. That's that's where it comes in, which I think answers the question we, we started out with. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this show. Um, I know imposter syndrome is, is a really big topic and we probably could have sat here for three hours talking about it, but I hope it's been useful for you. We really do love to hear your feedback. So do let us know if you've got any questions. We'll share lots of resources in the show notes, so hopefully they will be useful to you. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, you can email us at info at thecoachingquestion.com. And please do help us out by giving us a rating on iTunes or your preferred podcasting or video platform because it really does help us spread that word so look out for our next episode we look forward to speaking to you soon cheers everyone